the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Greetings once again, folks. We always look forward to our visits here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's AM 950 WTLN in Orlando, Florida. Jeff Sennis engineers our show each week. Uh, Andrew Herdliska is the producer of the show. And Oz Guinness, good friend, he's with us. His new book is out. It's called Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, However Dark the Times. Uh, Oz, I'm so glad you can join me again. I always look forward to our visits. Uh, It's a mutual pleasure. I love being with you. What does this mean? What does the title mean, Renaissance, the power of the gospel, however dark the times? What's all that mean? Well, if you look at the situation today, both in the West or the wider world, and certainly in America, many Christians look at all the problems surrounding us, and there's a sense of gloom and doom. You know, people ask me sometimes when I go to churches, is it all over, or are we going the way of Europe in terms of the churches and so on? And against that, I want to speak of the hope of the gospel and how it is that the gospel can really transform lives, but not only individual lives, but entire cultures. So that's what the book's about, the possibility of a a real renaissance in our time. Oz, we've got six important topics here in this new book. IVP is the publisher, by the way. Uh, The first topic I want you to teach us about is called our Augustinian Moment. Uh, What does that mean? What is an Augustinian moment? Well, if you think of St. Augustine, you know, he lived with the vandals and so on at the gates of his city, and he was a witness, not a witness personally, but he heard of the news of the Visigoths attacking Rome. In other words, after 800 years, the fall of Rome was a fall beyond belief. And Augustine's privilege and responsibility was to give a vision the Christians could follow that was like a bridge across what became the Dark Ages and centuries later led to the rise of Christendom. And in the same way today, we need a positive vision because we're living at the end of probably 500 years of Western dominance since the Portuguese navigators and so on right down through the American century in the 20th century. And we're at the end of all that. And the question is, rather than a sense of decline, we've got to have a constructive vision of the power of the gospel to take us through whatever the coming ages are to be. So that's the idea of the Augustinian moment. How do we rise to this extraordinary transition time? The second question I want to ask you, Oz, is grand global tasks. What what are they? Well, I wanted to put the Western challenges in the setting of the wider global challenges, because clearly, if you look around the world, the Christian faith, the gospel, is the world's first truly global religion. We are the most numerous faith on earth. We're the most diverse community on the earth. In many parts of the world, we're the fastest growing community, and it's through conversion, not just through the birth rate. And you can see the Bible is the most translated and the most translatable book in human history. But that said, we face some huge tasks. The first is to prepare the global south. The gospel's exploding in, say, sub-Saharan Africa or Asia. You know, where I happen to be born in China is the epicenter, the fastest growth of the church in 2,000 years. But, 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 many people who know those stories forget there's a sting in the tail. Much of the global south is pre-modern. When what is done in the church in the west is it's caving into the advanced modern world. So we've got to prepare them. So evangelism is running far ahead of discipleship. But they not only need discipleship, they need to know how to stand against the challenges of our modern world. 
That's the first task. The second task is to win back the West. You know, people think it, it may be all over for the Western Church. Not at all. If you think, we are the heirs of two great earlier missions to the West. The first was the conversion of Rome, an incredible achievement under the Holy Spirit. But when the Western Empire fell, not the Eastern, that lasted another thousand years, when the Western Empire fell, so did much of the Western Church. And the second mission to the West was the conversion of the barbarian Europeans. And we are the heirs of that incredible thing, which actually took place, and I'm glad the Irish were largely responsible for that. But we're living at the twilight of that second mission, but rather than gloom and doom, we should say, it's time now to win back our Western world for the Lord a third time. Not because the, the West is anything very special, it just happens to be our part of the world, it's our Jerusalem, and while we reach out to the uttermost parts of the earth, we mustn't forget our own Jerusalem. The third great task is to contribute to the human future, because we're in what's called the crunch generation, when many of the global issues are converging and will need huge answers, and Christians should be in the forefront of providing constructive answers for the future of humanity. So I, I, I try and paint in those three great tasks as the backdrop to considering how do we see revival and reformation in the Western world. Now, Oz, Oz Guinness is our guest. We're talking about his new book, Renaissance. Uh, the third topic I want you to get into is unnecessary, unlikely, and undeniable. What's going on here? Well, my three words, Pat, to describe the rather surprising, somewhat paradoxical relationship of the Christian faith to culture. In other words, you look at the great civilizations of the world, the Christian faith wasn't necessary for them. In other words, all of the ones before the West were shaped by their own views, say, Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, and so on. The gospel wasn't necessary. So just as we know that people can be good without God, well, we know that's so because they're made in the image of God, so cultures can be great without God, because, of course, they are, again, made in the image of God. But if you look at the Christian faith, you might say it's extremely unlikely that it would produce culture or a civilization. Jesus didn't talk about those sort of things. He says, I'm not of this world. And ten chapters later in John, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And yet, and yet, those who live the way of Jesus shape the world around them and do produce culture. And you can see that our Western civilization owes many of its greatest features to the gospel. Take, say, I, I look at the big five, I mean, the rise of a giving, caring, philanthropic uh, civilization. There's no culture in the world like that with, say, Christian contributions to things like hospitals and orphanages and so on. Or secondly, the reform movements of the West, you know, from the banning of infanticide right down to modern things like the abolition of slavery and the civil rights movement. They were all led by people of faith who were inspired by Jesus and the prophets. Or take other contributions like the rise of the universities, they partly came from Plato, but they came directly from the cathedral schools in the 11th century, or even down to things like the birth of modern science or the human rights revolution. These are all the gifts of the gospel. And if you think of new atheists, like, say, Christopher Hitchens, who says, how religion poisons everything. Well, that's absolute rubbish, and he knew better himself. But the fact is that many of the greatest features of our Western world go back to the gospel. And so we've got to see it's a somewhat surprising relationship, but it's an undeniable one that the Christian faith is the strongest set of ideas that have made the best of our Western world. The next topic I want you to get into is the secret of cultural power. Well, I just described how the Christian faith had this incredible cultural impact now, if you raise the question, how, which we need to raise today, you know, many Christians would say, well, that's impertinent. It's just God's power, and that's the end of it, and we should stop asking any questions. But, of course, in Scripture, you see that the sovereignty of God is behind everything. And, of course, finally, what changes our individual lives and the lives of whole cultures and civilizations is not anything less than the power of God. But you see in Scripture... God is sovereign, and we are significant. 
And we play a significant part in that great partnership with our Lord. So what is it that actually changes culture? Well, a lot of people had a crack at that question. I think, and I've outlined it in the book, the greatest answer is St. Augustine's. The, the two cities, he said, a city based on hearts that love themselves. That's the city of man, typified by Babylon in his day and then Rome later. Um, I mean, Rome in his day, in Babylon earlier, I should say. Then there's the city of God, where people's hearts are in love with God. So you have the city of God, the city of man. The city of God lives in the middle of the city of man. And here's the point. When we're living in the world, but not of the world, as our Lord called us to in John 17, there should be a dynamic tension with the world so that we're engaged. We have to be. We are discerning. We know what about the world is good, what about it is dangerous. Oz Guinness, our guest. We've got more with Oz. Got to take a break. We're back after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour. It's AM 950 WTLN. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Hello, everybody. Alan Thicke here. You know, our nation's tax laws change every year. The one constant is you have to pay them. Now, if you're one of those millions of Americans who owes back taxes, you know that the IRS is cracking down. They can garnish your paycheck, levy your bank accounts, even your home or business could be up for grabs. But here's the good news. They're offering a new way out. It's called the Fresh Start Initiative, a government program for tax debt forgiveness. You could qualify for a settlement that's substantially less than before. For these changes. And nobody knows this program better than the experts at Optima Tax Relief. Their attorneys and enrolled agents will work to get you the best deal possible. Optima Tax Relief is accredited by the Better Business Bureau. Call them now for a free consultation. Call 800-711-5743. That's 800-711-5743. 800-711-5743. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit OptimaTaxRelief.com. The next time you could use a pick-me-up, head over to Godvine.com for uplifting and inspirational videos that you'll truly love. Join the millions of Christians from around the world who watch and share Godvine videos each day. They know that Godvine videos are specially chosen to bring joy and share the love of God and the wonder of His creations. For the very best Christian videos, visit us today at Godvine.com. Listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Oz Guinness is my guest. His book is out. It's called Renaissance The Power of the Gospel, However Dark the Times. Oz, uh, before that harsh ending, I want you to finish uh, your discussion here on the secret of cultural power. Thanks. Well, my apologies, Pat. Ran into your break. Now, I was saying that when the Church lives as the city of God in the city of man, and we follow our Lord's injunctions to be in the world, but not of it, it means three things. One, we're engaged. Two, we're discerning. We know when the world is good and when the world is dangerous. But three, it means courage. Wherever the kingdom of the world is over against the kingdom of our Lord, we say no. Now, the two extremes we've got to avoid are being in the world and of the world, in other words, worldly. And the tragedy of America is, although we're a majority in this country, we are so worldly that we're weak. The other extreme, of course, is to be not in the world at all, and therefore not engaged and non-influential too. So there's the idea of the power. The power, of course, is of the Lord. But when we live the truth or practice the truth, in it, but not of the world. Then we have a, a tension with the world that is always the source of the church's changing, culture-changing power. Oz, now I want you to uh, explain to us the fifth topic, the dynamics of the kingdom. Well, that's a very interesting one, because we're in a, at a time when excellent scholarship has researched how ideas change societies. And you can look at the ancient Greeks or the Egyptians or people before them, 
or the Western world, and you can actually see how ideas have shaped society. But the scholarship is secular. It's not against the gospel, but it's all, as Ecclesiastes might put it, under the sun. It's a purely naturalistic way of looking at things. And if you see it that way, you can say there are three ways ideas change culture. Through leaders rather than followers. Through the center of a culture rather than the margins of society. And through networks rather than through individuals or institutions. Now, there's a lot to learn from those, but they're not specifically Christian ways of doing things. And I think if you look in the Gospels and Acts and then church history, you can see that the secrets of the spread of the kingdom are rather different. The first secret is the Spirit leads. Now, that sounds pious to say so, but the fact is that many churches in America have a deficient view of the Spirit at least in practice. You look at the extraordinary ways the Spirit leads in the Book of Acts, for instance, and we don't live like that today. Instead, we have our, you take our management approaches to things, vision, mission, personnel, timeline, budget. Of course, we move down to the most important of all, measurable outcomes. I call them miserable outcomes. We can do everything today by ourselves, and we almost live as if we don't need the Spirit. We can put a man on the moon, we can market a car or a perfume, we can grow a church, and we really don't need the Lord, because we can almost do it by ourselves. And yet, the kingdom spreads through the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and we've got a lot of relearning to do there. A second secret of the kingdom is it's always with surprising reversals. First, last, the last first, you name it. And we've got to be open to the Lord using the most surprising people or anonymous people who, whose prayers are far more important than all the rest of us speaking and acting together. And then the final little thing you can see in history is that great culture, with its art, music, sports, or whatever, is always a byproduct, not a goal. We don't aim to produce great music or great whatever. No, we follow our callings, whether it's your world of athletics or uh, someone in music or politics or law or whatever, we follow our callings, our utmost for his highest. And the product, the byproduct, is great culture. We seek first the kingdom of God, and a whole lot of things are added to us. So I think we need to re-explore the secrets of the spread of the kingdom so that we're doing it the Lord's way and not the world's way. Oz, topic number six, our golden age is ahead. Uh, why, why do we say that? Why do you say that? Well, I say that because people tend to think of the ages of church history they love. For Catholics, very often, the Middle Ages, with the cathedrals and the great music and the great philosophy and so on. Protestants usually for the Reformation. Evangelicals for the Great Awakenings in the 18th century. Pentecostals and Charismatics for the Azusa Street Revival in 1905 and so on. So people look to these great ages, but the greatest of the ages always have some unforeseen consequences, and at best they were mixed. And the point is, for Christians, our real golden age is coming. And we should never idolize and fail to see the weaknesses and the blind spots of many of the ages of the past. So, so in that part of the book, I'm looking at some of the lessons we can learn from 2,000 years of the Church's engagement with culture. And some of them are rather surprising. For instance, you can say, Periods of the greatest success carry the seeds of the worst failures. For example, Christendom. Christendom was the the world's first all-Christian, consistently Christian society. And yet out of the center of Christendom came the worst evils the Church has ever perpetrated on the world, such as the Inquisition. Or you could take a more recent example, the born-again movement when evangelicals were booming in America, but because there was a, a lack of prophetic critique of the weaknesses of the born-again movement, it's faded fast, and it's left hardly any long-term impact on this culture. I think the second of the lessons is that the darkest hour is just before the dawn. Now, that sounds a cliche, but actually it's the story of every revival. Five minutes before revival, everything looks bleak and dark. Five minutes afterwards, everything's changed. So in, say, 1798, Thomas Jefferson was predicting the end of evangelicalism 
and a triumph of Unitarianism. And then, to his dismay, came the Second Awakening, which meant the triumph of evangelicalism and almost the end of Unitarianism, and so on. So we need to learn from history some of the best and worst of the way the Church has engaged with culture so that we don't make the same mistakes all over again in our day. Oz Guinness is with us. We're uh, talking about his book, Renaissance. Oz, talk to me about the concluding postscript. Uh, It's a question. One more time again? (laughs) Well, you look at all the problems today, and we're surrounded with polls and opinion surveys and analyses showing the explosion of other religions, the attacks of, say, the secularists, and the rottenness in much of the church we're seeing a huge evangelical meltdown. So the question comes, you know, is there a better answer, a better day coming? Can we really have grounds for hope? And I would argue, yes. So whether we're looking at um, Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones, or thinking of revivals down the centuries, or thinking of our own times, there was a time after World War II when a group of Christian intellectuals raised the question, can Europe... Christian Europe be won back again? And many of them, in that discussion after the war, they said, I don't think so. Things have gone too far. And of course, since then, they've gone further down still in Europe. But the question is, can we see things turned around again today? Well, one of the people back in the 1940s said this. He said, of course, every Christian should answer yes, because of the power of God over history and the power of God to revive. But, he says, we mustn't answer too quickly and too lightly, because on the outcome of that answer probably depends the future of humanity. And I think that person was right, because the world is going into an extraordinary era in the global age when titanic questions are being raised for humanity, and you can see that the other philosophies of life, the other religions, simply don't have the profound answers that are necessary. We do in the Gospel. So there's no question there's a link between the revival of the Church in the West and the recovery of the integrity of the Church worldwide and the capacity of humanity to answer some of these deep questions. So what we're talking about, that is extraordinarily significant, not only for the Church in America, but for the future of humanity itself. Oz, I want to stay here in this back part of the book uh, where you give us an introduction to an evangelical manifesto and then, four pages later, an evangelical manifesto. Uh, can, can you talk about that? Well, thank you, Pat. Yes. If you think many people are disillusioned with evangelicalism, it's become so laden, so loaded down with cultural and political baggage that many people are just giving up on it. And, of course, evangelicalism is suffering a huge meltdown of biblical authority and so on. So that was published in 2008 by a group of evangelical leaders calling people back to the heart of what it really means to be evangelical, which is to define ourselves and our lives and everything we think and do by the good news of the kingdom that Jesus announces in the opening of the Gospels. That's the heart meaning of evangelicalism. So if you go back to the Reformation, the word Protestants, the Protestant was actually an insult used by their Catholic enemies. The Protestant reformers called themselves evangelicals before they, called, before they were called Protestants. And if you go back earlier still, St. Francis of Assisi, he was called an evangelical by the Pope because he, he was seeking to go back to think and live and speak according to the good news of the Gospel. So, in fact, that is the deepest and the earliest label that any of us can have as followers of Jesus. And we need to see a recovery of that in our day. And it's ironic that we have Catholics now calling for an evangelical Catholicism, and some Orthodox calling for an evangelical Orthodoxy. And what we need to see is, put it like this, an evangelical evangelicalism. In other words, get rid of all the cultural baggage and all the political baggage, and go back to the real thing being defined by the good news of Jesus himself. Very, very interesting. What, what do you want people to take from our discussion, Oz? Well, I think first, a sense of hope. 
not in our circumstances, certainly not in us. We cannot do it by ourselves, but hope, because the power of the gospel, and if we go back to the gospel, there is always hope because of the reviving power of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, a call to reform. Much of what passes for Christian or evangelical today is sub-Christian, or as I said earlier, an evangelicalism loaded with political baggage. We need to go back to the real thing. You know, one of my favorite stories is the story of a Thomas Lineker in Oxford at the time of the Renaissance. And you remember in those days, ordinary people didn't have the Bible, only the priests had it. He was given a copy of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, by a priest, and he read them in the Greek. He could read Greek. And in the end, he gave them back with this immortal remark. Either these are not the Gospels, or we're not Christians. <laughs> that was the gap between the Gospels and Christians in the Church was so great. And that's happened all over again in our time. The gap between the Gospels and evangelicalism is so great, we need reformation and revival in our time. Oz Guinness, author or editor of more than 30 books, a frequent speaker, prominent social critic, founder of the Trinity Forum. And I want to ask you, what is the Trinity Forum, Oz? Well, it's a forum put on for leaders around the country, uh, bringing issues of faith in line with the great conversation of our Western heritage in terms of uh, the challenges of leadership today. I'm not actually a part of it now, I left some years ago but it's going on strongly in Washington and different parts of the country. What's next for you? Um, Always writing, always trying to address the issues of the hour, and so I do a fair amount of speaking and a fair amount of writing, and it's a great privilege to be in the battle for the soul of this country. How do you get your book ideas, Oz? Well, (laughs) too many ideas and too little time because I've always tried to live in that place between the Scriptures and our crazy, fascinating, wonderful modern world. And when you do that, one is just constantly challenged, on the one hand, by the dilemmas of our modern world, and on the other hand, by the wonder of the answer that you see in the Gospel. And so topic after topic after topic just seems to arise. And uh, I've got far more topics than I have time left to write them. Well, that's good. Keep writing, Oz. I'm always uh, delighted to catch up with you, and uh, congrats on your latest book. Thanks so much, Pat. Always a privilege to be with you. Oz Guinness, author of Renaissance, The Power of the Gospel, However Dark the Times. Uh, IVP Books put it out, and uh, a very, very important read. Uh, We have more after this. Just a reminder, you're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour. It's AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. If you're the mother of a child with behavior problems, I'd like to talk to you. My name is Janet Lehman. I'm a behavioral therapist and a mom. I know what it's like when the child you love becomes a defiant, out-of-control child who disrespects you. That's why my husband James and I created the Total Transformation, the program that tens of thousands of moms are now using to turn around their child's behavior. If you've heard about the Total Transformation and wondered if it will work for you, now you can try it for free. I'm willing to give away a 1,000 programs today for free. All you need to do is get the program and let us know how it works for you. We'll let you keep it for free. I know the total transformation works because I used these techniques with my own son and with troubled kids for over 30 years. Let me prove to you that it works by giving you the program for free. Call now, 1-800-241-0676. 1-800-241-0676. That's 1-800-241-0676. Listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Oz Guinness, our guest in that first half hour, talking about his new book, Renaissance. Uh, Barnabas Piper joins us, <clears throat> a preacher's kid, <clears throat> excuse me, the son of well known pastor John Piper, lives in Nashville with his wife and two daughters and has a new book out. It's called The Pastor's Kid, Finding Your Own Faith and Identity. 
uh, David C. Cook, the publisher. Barnabas, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing just great. Thank you so much for having me on. So what was it like being a pastor's kid? Well, uh, there's a lot that goes into that answer, I suppose. Um, the overall experience was, was a positive one for me. Uh, it's not for many pastor's kids, but, uh, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed my upbringing. But there were definitely a list of distinct challenges that came with it as well, being in the public eye, specifically in, in a spiritual context, you know, where there are, there are moral and spiritual obligations sort of placed upon pastor's kids. I'm a big fan of your dad. What kind of father was he? John, uh, my dad was a was a great. He's a great dad, and he continues to be. He's a he's a wonderful grandfather now. Um, he he traveled a lot. He was a busy man, but uh, I didn't grow up with the feeling that he was absent. Uh, he made a he made it a point to spend time with us, and you know, t- taught me how to play sports, and uh, came to all my games, and those kinds of things. Um, but because of the uh, extent of his ministry, it did bring in challenges just in terms of the pressures in the home and the demands on his schedule and those kinds of things. But most of my difficulties um, as a pastor's kid had less to do with him in particular and more to do with the nature of being in a ministry context. Let's plow into your book. It's uh, fascinating. Chapter 1, Barnabas, What's Wrong With That Boy? Question mark. What's what's that about? That deals with the the assumptions that people place on pastors' kids. There's you know there's a bit of a, a stereotype that pastors' kids are rabble rousers, troublemakers. Um, you know you look around and you see notable pastors' kids who are clearly not part of the church now. Um, fam- you know famous people such as. Katy Perry today, and then the famous pirate from the 17th century, Captain Kidd, both pastor's kids. Mm. Um, so you, you, get, you just sort of look at pastor's kids and see this. There, there's an expectation of failure. They, they're going to rebel. But the flip, side of that, the, the flip side of that is that there's also an expectation of perfection. And one sort of feeds the other. The pressure of perfection leads to rebellion for many pastor's kids. I wonder what the percentage is of pastors' kids who go into the ministry and are successful compared to those who fall by the wayside. I wonder if there's statistics on that. Yeah, I don't know the statistics. I can just say from from a from a personal observation and interaction standpoint, one of the things that surprised me most as I interacted with dozens of pastors' kids in, in writing the book was the number who had, no matter what struggles they'd been through earlier in their life, had circled back around and ended up in ministry. Um, And I actually deal with that at the end of the book, just describing some of the unique things that being a pastor's kid sets us up to do well in terms of um, a lot of people go into the ministry unaware of the challenges. That's never true for a pastor's kid. A pastor's kid walks into pastoral ministry or vocational ministry of any kind knowing that the church is a place that can be wonderful and it can be terrible, and, and often at the same time. And so there's a unique sort of apprenticeship aspect of being a pastor's kid if somebody feels called in that direction. Second topic in your book is simply called the fishbowl. Yes, and that that, uh, title almost speaks for itself, just in the sense of pastor's kids are on display all the time, whether or not they want to be, and that's true for uh, somebody like me who grew up in a fairly public context with a, a dad who's nationally known, or a pastor's kid who's in a very small church in central Florida, say, you know, a small Baptist church. At, there's that that um, scrutiny scales to size. So whether it's a million people who know who you are or a hundred, you feel it in that context all the time. And it, and it, it comes from very sort of subtle and innocuous things oftentimes. Things like seven or eight people coming up on a Sunday morning and asking personal questions, even though you would not consider them a personal friend. They know you, you don't know them. And that that makes you feel like they're watching you. And then there are some more blatant uh, times when people will pull you aside and chastise you for your behavior in a way that they never would another kid. Mm. So those kinds of things, that that whole chapter is about the, the pressure of scrutiny leading to expectations. Third topic I want to get into. Uh, Barnabas Piper uh, is our guest. His book is called The Pastor's Kid. Third topic, expectation roller coaster. 
Yeah, and I actually I, I mentioned this uh, when we were when we were talking just a moment ago, but that idea that pastors' kids on the one hand are expected to fail, they're expected to be there's sort of a waiting for us to fail mentality, and that's that's obviously not true from everybody in the church, but that's just sort of the general milieu. But then that is coupled with this expectation of you have to know your Bible, you have to have a strong faith in God, you have to have a good relationship with your family, you have to be a good Christian kid, you have to behave better than the other kids, these sort of, these sort of expectations. And so when you put them side by side, you have on the one hand an expectation of near perfection, and on the other hand an expectation that you're bound to fail, and it essentially leaves pastor's kids feeling like... They don't know where to go, what to do, how to act, because everything ends up feeling like the wrong answer if if you're forced to live by those expectations. Now, Barnabas, let's uh, get to topic four, identity crisis. How big a deal is that? That is an enormously big deal, and it's one of the ones that's the hardest to see from the outside. Um, for me, that was the greatest challenge of being a pastor's kid. It wasn't, you know, the, the expectations and everything fed it a little bit, and they, they all of that functioned on the outside to create additional challenges. But the identity crisis, and for me it looked like I grew up with a, with a sound knowledge of the Bible. I heard the gospel from a very young age. Um, I gave my life to Christ as a seven-year-old, and so from from a very early age, I was just in this this understanding of God and the Bible. But I didn't that that all that understanding did not connect with my heart in the same way that say a relationship with a close friend would or with a spouse would, in the sense that there's this love and this desire and this passion and this comfort level there like you would hope you have in a relationship with God. So there's a disconnect between all the things that I know and where my relationship with God actually stands. And that created a void for me that I ended up filling up with a whole lot of stuff that I shouldn't have filled it up with. And so my life sort of crumbled to to pieces uh, after I got out of college, and it was only then that I, I discovered and Christ showed himself to me in a way that was that was relationally powerful and distinctly personal. And I think the same happens to a lot of pastor's kids in different contexts. They grow up with the faith of their parents, the biblical framework that that they were handed, but it's not until later that they get to a place that they go, but what do I believe about God? How do I interact with God? What, What does faith look like in my life? As a kid growing up, what did you take from your dad's sermons? The short answer is not much, um, but that I you know, and I don't know if that's I don't know if that's just me or if that's many pastors' kids, but um, I just uh, it was so normal to hear him talk, just because we talked at the dinner table and we talked in the car and we talked in everyday life that a sermon was just dad talking again. Now, for those who are huge fans of my dad, that almost sounds sacrilegious, but if they just put themselves in in the shoes of listening to their own father speak all the time and then again on Sundays it it may sound a little bit more normal but yeah i don't uh the influence my dad had on me was much more in the home than in the church in the sense that it was conversational it was family devotions it was those kinds of things that um when he was speaking to me instead of to a congregation that i happened to be part of did you read his books some of them. Uh, the ones that I've enjoyed most are the ones that he, where he touches on very specific topics. His more general theology books, like uh, Desiring God or Pleasures of God, which are really sort of his keynote books, I, I haven't read all the way through because as I start reading them, I think, well, this sounds very much like talking to him, and I actually like talking to him more than reading him. Um, but his books, like the biographies and some of those, I've enjoyed a lot. Barnabas Piper, our guest, <clears throat> son of John Piper. The book is out, The Pastor's Kid. Uh, topic five, Barnabas, what a PK needs more than anything. Yes, that, uh, the, the short answer there is a, it's a one-word answer, and the answer is grace. And then in that chapter, I just lay out what grace looks like coming from different places, but specifically coming from the family and that is the grace to fail, the grace to explore, the grace to, to have the elbow room 
to 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 find one's own faith in Christ because um, pastors' kids often feel judged. We feel judged because of the expectations that I mentioned earlier and the scrutiny. And so, to be able to to look around and see, to find that genuine experience of God loves me, and He loves me in spite of my failures. He does. You know, he, he doesn't have a whole bunch of false expectations. He has a single standard, and it's the same as it is for everybody, and that's honor Christ, to live to glorify God. And those are, you know, that's, that's all we should live for. And so the short answer there is just grace woven through all of life, that something that pastors kids often struggle to connect with and struggle to find in a meaningful way. I love your name, Barnabas. Well, what well, was it, what was it like growing up with uh, with that biblical giant of a name and and how is it like today and what do people call you Barney well, Barney uh, well yeah some do that's not my preferred nickname I, I mean I don't have a preferred nickname I've gotten uh, people have tried just about any number of things and none of them have stuck um, it's you know it, it's just like any name in the sense that you just kind of get used to it and it's your own it's unusual which means I, it always catches me off guard whenever i hear that the word used in any other context um but uh the the thing that stands out the most is the number of church people who are really proud of themselves for knowing what my name means so i'll introduce myself to hey, i'm barnabas pipe and they go oh barnabas son of encouragement <laughs> and you know you just kind of have to Give them a nod, like yes, congratulations, you won the Bible trivia game that I didn't know we were playing. <laughs> That's great. Tell me, tell me your parents' uh, thinking when they when they named you that. Well, have you uh, talked to them about it? Um, I mean, not not specifically, but it fits a pattern. I have three older brothers and a younger sister, and all of us have distinctly either biblical names or uh, distinctly uh, Christian names. What are they? Um, my oldest brother is Karsten, which is. Uh, it's a German derivative of, of Christian. And then my second brother is Benjamin, then Abraham, then myself. And then I have a sister named Talitha, which is drawn out of uh, the Gospel of Mark when Jesus raises a little girl from the dead and says, Talitha Kum. Mm. So that's, we, we all have these names that tie us to a faith and, or into Scripture in a distinct way. And so, you know, just like everything that my, uh, that my parents do, there's a, a distinct biblical intentionality about it. What's it like when all the Piper children get together? Well, it doesn't happen uh, terribly often anymore because we've kind of hit the four corners of the country now, uh, and all of us have our own kids, and so travel has become more challenging. But um, we're kind of at the stage in life now where, um, you know, everybody is independently pointed in our own direction and, you know, has our own kind of distinct family identities. But... So it, at this point, it's a lot about our kids and, you know, the cousins getting together and enjoying each other. So it's sort of the the, the madhouse of kids running around and playing and while the adults are trying to make sure nobody busts their head open. What is your dad's life like now after uh, leaving the pulpit? Um, I, I'm not exactly sure because he is just transitioning. He, he took about a year off to, to kind of sabbatical during that transition. And he will, uh, he's just now, they've just now moved back to Minnesota. They sabbaticaled uh, out of state for a year. And he will be doing some teaching at the Bethlehem College and Seminary, which is the, the school attached to the church where he pastored. Mm-hmm. And, and then he'll, be, he'll continue to do his work with Desiring God, uh, the, minute, the resource ministry that, he, that is uh, devoted to his material. So writing, speaking, and just general content generation. So my guess is it will look a lot the same as it did before, just without the weekly rhythm of staff meetings and preaching on Sundays, um, but lots of writing, lots of speaking, and then weekly teaching to college and seminary students. We have another session with <clears throat> Barnabas Piper. Uh, we're talking about his book, The Pastor's Kid, Finding Your Own Faith and Identity. Stay with us. We uh, have another segment here on the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour. <clears throat> it's AM 950 WTL in More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Hello, this is John Butler Book, and I want to cordially invite you to listen to my radio talk show every Sunday evening from 8 to 9 p.m. 
You know, we suffer from three kinds of individuals in our country today, the misinformed, the uninformed, and worst of all, the chloroformed. I don't want you to become one of those who is misinformed, but informed and spiritually motivated and activated to become a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. On the new 950 WTLN every Sunday evening from 8 to 9 p.m., I'll wait to hear from you. God bless you. Make your day a little brighter with God Vine videos. For the best cute and inspiring videos to lift you and strengthen your walk with God, visit us today at GodVine.com. If strenuous activity like chores, sports, or work is in your day's forecast, then muscle pain probably is too. Better get prepared by picking up a can or two of Salon Paws Jet Spray. Salon Paws Jet Spray has two powerful pain-fighting ingredients that you spray right where it hurts. It goes on clear, dries fast, and relieves pain for hours and hours. Look for the blue can with a blue cap. Salon Paws, powerful relief when and where you need it, uses directed. Kid, if something in this facility breaks, bends, or bursts, Granger's got our back. 20 cases of disc springs from Granger.com, new rotary encoder ordered on Granger's mobile app, a dozen splash goggles from the local Granger branch. What more could you want in life? Granger has over 1 million products for all our facilities' needs. 1 million. That's a 1 followed by 6 zeros, kid. Everything we need whenever we need it. Get it? Got it? Good. Call, click Granger.com, or stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey, it's Bill Bennett. Have a dream kitchen or bathroom in mind? Shop online at AmericanKitchensFL.com or hit pound 250 from your cell phone and say kitchen. Pound 250 from your cell phone and say kitchen. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Barnabas Piper, author of The Pastor's Kid, is our guest. Let's get into this topic, Barnabas. Pastor and Child. It's actually the sixth chapter. Uh, what's that about? That In that chapter, I, I tried to address, frankly and honestly, the, the distinct relationship between pastors and their kids. I mean, as the, as the title would indicate. Um, because one of the things that, that I experienced a little bit in my own life... Um, but that I heard just over and over and over again from other pastors' kids was both the upside and the downside of the relationship between pastors and kids. And the, the overarching theme of that chapter is that pastors' kids want fathers, not pastors. And I mean, it, it ties a little bit to what I mentioned earlier with when you asked about how I related to my dad's sermons, and I said I relate better to him in conversation than I do when he's preaching. That That is... That is a uh, a snapshot of what you'll find in that chapter in terms of pastors' kids wanting to connect with their fathers. They want to relate to them. They want them to be present. And that's not to say that pastors can't, you know, take the emergency call to go to someone's hospital bedside or when there's a crisis at church. Every job requires things like that, especially on-call jobs like doctors or emergency responders, things like that. But it is to say that if your life... Get, uh, becomes a pattern of the church before your family, you've sacrificed your family for your ministry. And that's false. That, that's a false understanding of your calling, because any father's first calling is to wife and children first, anything else following. And that's true for pastors as well. And so that, that was a challenge to pastors, but also I tried to give some practical pieces of advice about how to engage your kids and how to have a hobby that you can plug them in with because kids love to be looped into what their parents enjoy doing and those kinds of things. Let's get to the issue of parent for your congregation. What, what is that about? What's going on here? What I did, what I, what I did there was I took the, the relationship between pastor and child and turned it towards the congregation. And so that the idea there is that pastors should you've heard uh, you've heard the phrase pastor your family and i take issue with that because not because it's a it's a false phrase but because of what pastor means in the, the current church culture pastors are expected to be the superman of the church they're expected to know all the answers counsel people run the business 
preach on Sundays, be a theological scholar, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, they're what if they bring that into the home? Then all of a sudden they're trying to be Superman at home, and that's not what anybody wants. And so it's this idea of pastor your family for the good of the church, and in the church context, create a realistic expectation because that will reflect back on your family. And I realize that that is asking a lot of pastors. That's not an easy thing to do, but it is. It's that two-way street of pastoring. Or I'm sorry, parenting for your children, and then parenting for your congregation. Now I want you to talk about. PKs, what are they good for, you ask? The, uh, the answer there is lots of things. Um, so the, the, obviously the first seven chapters of the book create, talked about many challenges and created a bit of a, uh, a somber tone in terms of the things that are difficult and, and the, the hard things that happen. What I did in that last chapter was simply to say, here are a handful of things that God has blessed pastor's kids with because of our unique upbringing. And it's things like pastor's kids know more Scripture than your average kid because we can't help it. And even if we have gone a different belief direction than our parents, that raw material of Scripture is there, and God can use that at any time because we know that the Word of God is how the Holy Spirit communicates with believers. So... The, the raw biblical material is there. The awareness of the church is there for both good and ill. So pastor's kids have seen the downside for sure, but we've also gotten to see the glories of what happens in a church when people are saved and lives are turned around and fellowship grows stronger and you know communities are changed. And then we've gotten to see the rhythms of ministry. So when I mentioned earlier that a lot of pastor's kids, surprisingly to me, end up back in ministry, it's... It, if you think about it, that's a natural thing, because they look at it and they go, I understand this world. I understand what it takes. I understand what it looks like to, to try to balance, you know, family and church and to preach on Sundays or to counsel people. And, and then the last thing, and this is just sort of a raw relational thing, is pastors kids understand the people in the church. So often people go into ministry and they're caught off guard by the fact that there are people who are really demanding or people who, who uh, are backstabbing, but also people who are wonderfully encouraging. And a pastor's kid can kind of survey that and go, yes, I know that there's every type of person here from person who will hurt me if I turn my back to person who will hug me anytime I see them. And so there's just that sense of awareness and love for God's people, uh, again, if God is moving someone towards ministry. So there's just... But even if somebody's not even if somebody's not called to vocational ministry, a pastor's kid is in a position to serve in a church as a lay person in a unique way um, because because of all the things I just listed. At the end of your book, Barnabas, you have seven rules for when you meet a PK. Uh, can you can you share that with us? Yeah, those are. Uh... <laughs> Those are a little bit more tongue-in-cheek, I would say, than, than the rest of the book. And that, that was on purpose, just because uh, most of the book I tried to be pretty, uh, pretty well thought out and serious. And these are a little bit more punchy. But they're, they're basic ideas like, <laughs> ironically, don't ask us what it's like to be the son or daughter of whoever. And I think that probably applies more to people like me who have well-known uh, parents. But I think, I think it probably happens to any pastor's kid. If, if your parent is respected in a community, you're going to get that kind of question. Uh, don't quote our dads to us. And that happens to every pastor's kid. You know, didn't you hear what your dad said in his sermon last Sunday? Well, that's not helpful because I'm sure he said it to us in conversation at the dinner table. And, <laughs> you, you know, if, if we're going to learn that lesson, it's not going to be because you quoted him at us. Um, don't ask us anything personal you wouldn't ask of any, anyone else. You know, I mentioned that earlier in talking about the expectations, but that's just a good guideline for any person in the church. Is if you don't, if you want to bless your the pastor's kid, think before you ask them a question and think, would I ask, would I ask any other kid this question, or is this coming from a place of sort of extra awareness? How did you end up in Nashville? <laughs> yes, I. Uh, I was in Christian publishing for about seven or eight years in the Chicago area, and. Um, 
got to the place where it felt like it was the right time to move. My kids were still young enough to, that, that it could be a relatively easy transition. And so I wasn't looking to find something, but I was sort of in a position where if the right opportunity opened, I would take it. And Lifeway Christian Resources, where I work now, um, had an opening, and a friend recommended me to it. Turns out the guy who runs the uh, the department that I'm part of was somebody I had gotten to know a little bit. And so it was just one of those things where God lined up the opportunity and lined up my circumstances and such. That it was a natural move, and it's been a great shift for us. We've been here almost a year and, uh, and are really enjoying it. Tell me about Nashville as a Christian center, publishing, music. What's that like? Well, it's interesting because I moved from the Wheaton, Illinois area, which is also a Christian Mm. center. So Nashville actually seems a little bit less like that uh, (laughs) in one sense, just because they're so concentrated in the Wheaton area with multiple publishers and large churches. The thing about Nashville that stands out to me is that it's in the Bible Belt. So there is this there's a pervasive cultural Christianity. So, for example, the first letter we got around the holiday season from my, I have a second grade daughter, like she's third grade now, from her teacher, and it said Merry Christmas at the bottom. Well, that totally caught me off guard because in Illinois, public school teachers, as far as I know, never wish Merry Christmas, and it's almost sort of outlawed. So they would say, you know, happy holidays or have, a, you know, season's greetings or something like that. So just the the openness to religious talk but that also creates a challenge because it's hard to tell where do people genuinely stand in their relationship with the Lord. Everybody is comfortable in that context, but it's hard to know who believes what, who has a relationship with Christ, those kinds of things. Well, I'm so glad we could visit Barnabas. The book, The Pastor's Kid, <clears throat> Finding Your Own Faith and Identity, uh, David C. Cook, the publisher, Barnabas Piper, in Nashville our guest. Uh, A million thanks. So good to visit with you. Thanks so much for having me on, Pat. I appreciate it. We will have a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour, AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Have you ever heard God's whisper? Sometimes it's easier to see where God whispered to us when we look back in time, but more difficult in the moment. This may be one of those times. If you or someone you know is pregnant, adoption is a positive alternative and a truly brave decision you don't need to make alone. Life for Kids is a private, nonprofit, Christian and licensed adoption agency serving women who are pregnant, their unborn babies, and the adoptive families who are praying you will choose life. Life for Kids offers compassionate counseling, adoption planning, information, and support. Have you considered adopting? Life for Kids serves Christian couples called by God to adopt, and they've placed children into loving Christian homes for over 20 years. Is this the whisper you've been waiting for? Adoption is a positive choice. Life for Kids will walk with you on your adoption journey. Visit lifeforkids.com. That's lifeforkids.com. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour. Uh, We always enjoy these visits with you and uh, are grateful for all the help we get in putting the shows together. Oz Guinness, our guest in the first half hour, talking about Renaissance, his new book, and then Barnabas Piper, son of the uh, great preacher John Piper, uh, joined us from Nashville talking about his latest work called The Pastor's Kid. Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, please check out my most recent book. It's called How to Be the Ultimate Teammate. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it far more than a sports book. Uh, and you can go up to Amazon.com and uh, and order that book quickly. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. In the meantime, have a great day tomorrow uh, with your family in church and a wonderful week ahead. And we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour. It's AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. So long, folks. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this same time on the intersection of faith and reason. 
the new 950 WTLN. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.